when you discover a really good restaurant or a great new song, what's your natural reaction? You want to tell your friends about what you found so they can experience it too. Shouldn't that be true about the gospel as well? A man in India tasted the good news about Jesus Christ, and his natural reaction was to prepare to share the gospel with as many people as he could. A VOM worker named Aaron shares this man's story. He was 67 when he heard this message, and it just touched his heart, and so he he received it. So 67 years old, he's been a Hindu his whole life, and then the next thought in his mind was, I need to get trained so that I can tell others this message. So at 67, he signs up for a one-year course in church planting. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help right now on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton. Our guest today is Aaron Miller. Now, that's not actually his real name, but for security reasons, that's what we're going to call him today. Aaron is a staff member here at the Voice of the Martyrs. In fact, he oversees our work in South Asia and he's been a guest with us here before on VOM Radio. Last time he was with us, Aaron told us about uh, the time that he got just a small taste of persecution himself. He was attending a gathering of Christians in India that was attacked by radical Hindus. You can hear that story if you look in the archives at vomradio.net, just like you can hear all past episodes of VOM Radio. Aaron, welcome back to Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Let's talk about your recent trip to India. I know you just returned from there. Who were some of the people you met that really impacted you? The the, the people you came home and said, I want to tell my family about that guy or that yeah. lady because the story just impacted you. Definitely. I had a chance to sit in a meeting of pastors and church leaders. These are those guys that we would call frontline workers. I mean, they are they are out there doing it day in and day out. They receive the threats. They receive the beatings oftentimes, and they go back and they stay. And so I, I'm in a room of these guys. You know, these are heroes of the faith, and, and we're, in a, we're in an obscure village in, in central India again, and I'm just listening to their stories, and they're just kind of fellowshipping together over their stories. And you have older gentlemen who are sharing their stories. You have younger guys who are listening and, and receiving that and, and just, you know, then sharing their stories if they have them. So it's just a great time of testimony. Um, during that meeting that night, as I'm sitting there in the back of the room, just in a back chair, just really trying to stay out of the way, I was honored to be there when this young guy stood up and he shared his story. And he was kind of half in English and half in Hindi, and he's, you know, speaking back and forth, and my Hindi's not great, so I'm having a guy next to me kind of tell me some of the words he's saying. And at one point, the room kind of erupts in laughter, and I didn't get it. And I, so I'm thinking, okay, I, I want to know what he said. What did he say? What did he say? Exactly. But, but this joyful laughter was filling the room. And so the guy translating leans over, and he says, oh, my goodness, brother, I, I don't know how to translate this, but it's so good. And I said, well, you know, 
can you please try? Tell me. I, I want to know. And he said, well, he, the brother up in front sharing his testimony was talking about being out and, and sharing with people and, and witnessing. And a group of people started to beat him and the guys that he was with that day. And he said the way that this brother was describing the beating, he said, they beat us so bad, it was like rain coming down on us. Wow. And, and so, you know, I thought, wait a minute, if I'm standing in front of a church in America and I say that we were beaten so bad it was like rain coming down on us, there's going to be a collective sigh and a, a silence that fills the room. And these brothers burst out laughing because they knew what he meant. <laughs> Most of them in the room had been there and, and they hadn't heard it described that way. And it was just so amazing for me to watch them. Just a tremendous testimony. And one of the blessings that VOM has when we go in the field is bringing people like that together to fellowship together. Yes. Because they are often serving out, way out, where they're the only Christian or there's only a couple of Christians. And so when you bring them together in, you know, 25 or 30 church planters or pastors or frontline workers, they soak up that fellowship. They really do. They really do. And and you're right. You know, a lot of what we love to do when we go is bring these guys who they do feel alone. They, their families feel alone. They, I mean, they're, they're a very much a minority in this country and in this region of the world. And so when you put them with 20, 30, 40 other people who are doing the same thing and who have the same faith and very much like-minded, there is an energy that the Holy Spirit brings in that room, and it, it just is so evident. Uh, it is it is an amazing thing, and and they don't have that opportunity very often. That, that's one of the, one of the great blessings that VOM gets to do is say, hey, we want to bring you, we want to bring your wife, come to this city or this village, and we're all going to get together, and we'll cover your travel. You just come and and be a part of this fellowship, and like you say, they they soak it up, they love it coming together. Who were some of the other people that you met on this trip? There was a a young uh, bicycle rickshaw driver that really impacted me because of the way he came to the Lord. He was a part of <laughs> kind of a creative way to get the gospel to people. A partner organization of ours is is working in this part of the world, and they saw an opportunity, their leadership team saw an opportunity to bless the least of these. And if you know anything about this part of the world, those men who drive bicycle rickshaws are really the low of the low. I mean, they're just the least of these, often mistreated. And so this guy, he's in his mid-20s, and, and the leadership of this partner organization decided to bless them. They wanted to have a rickshaw road race where you just let these guys have a race, and whoever <laughs> wins gets a prize, and, and people get T-shirts. And the way they described it, and they showed us some pictures of it, it was amazing. I mean, crowds lining the street to watch these guys drive their bicycle rickshaws and race. And it, he said it got very competitive, I'm you know? sure. <laughs> Um, so this young guy, this twenty mid twenty year old guy, won back a couple years ago in 2015. And what happened after that was interesting because they scheduled monthly appointments to go to his home, visit him, and they let that be a way to to have access to him, to build a relationship to him. Uh, you said earlier, Todd. You know, sometimes the the presence of a foreigner, especially if they're from the West, can really be a problem. 
But even if they're not from the West, even if it's just an outsider from their village uh, or to their village, they can cause some troubles as well. Um, so now they had a reason to go in. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a reason to spend time with them because they had honored him and he had won this race. And so they did a couple things over that those months of, of teaching him. They, they taught some biblical financial principles, which increased their family's standard of living and really helped them kind of have a different trajectory for their family, for his wife and for their kids. But what was most important was this organization, not only were they trying to bless them socially by raising them up a little bit, not only were they trying to bless them financially and help them have some better financial skills, they were also, as the main thing, they were trying to get the gospel and the message of Christ into this home. And so they regularly were talking about Jesus. They regularly were sharing stories from the gospels. And I'm telling you, they did it so patiently, so relationally, and so caring and, and with great love. So after about eight months or so, this young man and his wife, who who were Muslim background, they had heard enough stories and they told the guy when he came, they said, you know, we've been thinking about everything you've been telling us and, and we want to follow this Jesus. We want to learn more about him. We want to follow him. And that was just amazing. I mean, that's better than than winning the race, uh, the rickshaw race. That's better than getting the prize. That's better than the financial principles he learned. Um, so now, spiritually, his family is on a much different trajectory as well. And I love the fact that it wasn't like they presented the gospel and five minutes later he made a decision. It oh, was yeah. over yeah. a number of months because there's going to be a price That's right. to be paid by him. Yes. It, this is not an easy decision. This is not exactly. something to be done lightly. So by doing it in relationship over a number of months, when he made that decision, it was made. Yeah, exactly. It was so encouraging to see see that resoluteness in him as we sat in his home, a little home. We sat there and, and he just said, yeah, this is who we're following now. Wow. Yeah. So have they been able to then in turn share that now with, with other people in in that sphere? Probably in their family. We were we were there and their decision had just been a few months ago. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I yeah. guess to that point, I don't know yet. It where will come. At. Yeah, with definitely, time. definitely. I know one of the other Christians that you met on this trip uh, was somebody who came late in life to ministry. <laughs> so I, I want you to share that story because I know we have some listeners who maybe are in the second half of their life, and we've talked before about God may have some big plans for the second half of your life. So share about this pastor. Amen. This is such a great story. This probably was one of the ones that as soon as I got off the plane, I wanted to share with my family at home. We met a pastor who heard the gospel through a frontline worker um, in north, kind of northeastern India. And he was 67 when he heard this message, and it just touched his heart. And so he, he received it. So 67 years old, he's been a Hindu his whole life, lived in very rural India. And so he receives this message. And then the next thought in his mind was, well, I need to, I need to get trained so that I can tell others this message. <laughs> so at 67, he signs up for a one-year course in church planting. Wow. So a church planting training that, that we, through VOM, is helping to sponsor and helping with a partner organization to conduct. And I'm guessing most of the people who would go to this training are like 18, 19, 20. Definitely. I mean, they're <laughs> young people who probably have grown up in the church, and now they've heard it, and, and either their parents are, are involved in ministry, and so they're going to go that way too, or, 
or, you know, so it's just, yeah, he was definitely not the norm in yeah. this case. So he goes to this training. About month 10, the leaders of the training challenged everybody to go and plant a church. Now, you've heard us teach you principles. You've heard us tell you, you know, the, the ins and the outs of how to do it and, and tools to use. Now go use them, which is so important. And so he took that challenge and he, he went and he, he found a village about three kilometers away from his home. And he went and began meeting and praying and just trying to go there very regularly and, and plant a church. And one of his converts <laughs> is even older. <laughs> oh, my Share goodness. Share that yes. story. Yes. So here's this. At this point, when the guy, when we saw him, he's 70 years old. And so this, this 70-year-old pastor who, who's full of fire and full of passion and, and just really passionate about this work. Um, so we got a chance to visit him, and we walk into this little room, dimly lit, and different people stand up and share testimony of how they met him and how he came to the village and, and shared with them. And then there was a very, very elderly-looking lady sitting on the floor in the middle of this crowd. And because we were the guest, they were honoring us, and so they had us sitting up front in some plastic chairs. And I saw this lady, and I, I asked them what was her story. And so they began to tell us her story and, and ask her questions, and she was answering. And they told me she's 102 years old. Wow. 102. And not to be disrespectful, but from looking at her, I believed it. I mean, she just <laughs> it, it just weathered skin, just, uh, you know, but she had a beautiful smile, too. So when they told me how old she was, I immediately said, Oh, we've got to get her off the floor. Please bring her up here. Sit her in this chair right beside me. So she sits in the chair beside me. And typically when I'm in India, you know, I don't I don't take a woman's hand. I would even if we're praying or something, you know, wouldn't do that at all. This is not proper, not appropriate. But this lady, as she sat next to me, um, we both kind of just reached and, and just took hands and I'm holding her her wrinkled, leathery kind of skin hands, you know, and I'm just looking in her eyes, and, and I, I asked them, please tell me her story. I've got to know. And so they began to tell us her story of how she came to faith, and, and it was in the last year. So it was in wow. 2016 when she came to know the Lord and to, to at receive. At 101. At 101, yeah. <laughs> um, but she had an interesting experience several years before. She, I guess, fell ill and went into a very non-conscious state. I don't know if it was a coma or what, and her family thought she was dead. Breathing was so shallow, couldn't be detected. And we're in a, we're in a village area where they're not going to have a hospital to, to take her to and, oh, let's pronounce death and let's hook her up to machines, nothing like that. And so they really thought she was dead. And in India, the, the custom is within hours, they're going to cremate. Uh, that's just part of the Hindu culture. And so they were wrapping her body. They were placing flowers on her body, um, families mourning. And then as they're doing that, as they're preparing her, somebody notices, wait, there's a movement of a, of a finger. Oh, there's a movement of a toe. Wow. Exactly. So the family begins ripping these flowers off, begins unwrapping her, and they start, um, the way they described it, they started massaging her hands, massaging her legs, trying to get blood circulating, you know, trying to revive her. And they did. They revived her, and, and she was back. I mean, it was just incredible. So the verse that came to my mind as I'm listening to her story, she, she's looking in my eyes, she's speaking a, a, a dialect, I mean, a language that is very little, just a tribal language. 
And so they're having to translate into Hindi and then to English for me. Um, and she's telling this story. And the verse that, that I thought of was in John 10 when it just says, you know, the Lord knows his sheep and no one can snatch them out of his wow. hand. The enemy, in my mind, tried to snatch this lady. Uh, she didn't have salvation yet, and he couldn't. The enemy couldn't snatch her. The Lord was still in control. And so now, several years later, you know, she hears the gospel from a faithful man of God who, who just went to a village because there was no church there, shares with, with some of her family. They share with her. And now she looks at me and she says, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I wasn't ready before, but I'm ready now. It was amazing. Wow. God is good. Amen. Definitely. As we finish up, I, I want to talk a little bit about India because um, India has changed over the last couple of years in terms of persecution and in terms of hostility. Talk a little bit about what's going on now from the standpoint of, of government persecution. What does persecution look like right now in India? Yeah, persecution is, is changed. Um, it has changed over the last few years. We feel like there's some more rigid guidelines being put in place, things being enforced now. But they're also putting things out at doing some religious awareness trainings in coastal areas, in villages, in tribal areas. And they're, they're trying to inform the people in those areas, hey, be aware, because people are coming to change your culture. India is Hindu. India is a Hindu culture, and these people are trying to change our culture. Um, and so they're, they're warning them, basically. They're to, poisoning the well, really. They I, are. I mean, they really are. Now someone shows up with a Bible, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're the guy they warned me about. They told me about you, yeah. Uh, and so not only that, they're also telling them and, and trying to place key people in those villages and in coastal areas and in tribal areas. They're placing people and saying, hey, you, if you see someone or you hear of someone call this number. Let us know. Keep an eye on them. Um, let us know when they're coming. Let us know where they went to next. And and that's a new level. We haven't seen that level of, of organization that, I, that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. You know, 10 years ago, it was there were radical Hindus, but it wasn't necessarily the government policy or government action that was against the church. Now we're seeing with the ascension of Prime Minister Modi, who has a background in the radical Hindu movement, we're seeing some of that government pressure come to bear. One of the things that we've seen as it relates to that government pressure is foreign groups being kicked out. I know we've talked about foreign Christians who suddenly their visa didn't get renewed and, and they're not welcome anymore. I'm sorry, you have to go home. I know Compassion International, a Christian ministry that has a long history in India, has just announced publicly they are not going to work there anymore. They cannot work there anymore. Is is that something that's part of this pattern, or is that even kind of above this government intervention and government pressure? Oh, I definitely think it's a part of it. I think it's a concerted effort. We do know that Prime Minister Modi has that background in radical Hinduism and some of those extremist groups he has ties to. Or, um, and so I think it's all connected. I, I heard from a pastor of a large church in New Delhi, and he says there are definitely operatives for those radical Hinduistic nationalist groups in government offices, in, in the government office who are keeping an eye, because you, you do have a lot of Christians who are in public service there. You do have people who, who work in some key government offices at the state level and then also at the national level in India. And so they'll keep an eye on 
what's happening, what policies are coming out of those offices, and what policies are being promoted, what, which ones are, are in the pipeline, and they'll communicate to the government. So there is definitely, it's, it's all connected. And again, the, the background motivation for them is India is a Hindu nation. We want to keep it a Hindu nation. We want 100% of Indians to be Hindu. And in fact, some government officials have talked about that publicly. They definitely. have talked about India is Hindu. We want it always to be Hindu. We're not going to let these foreign religions come in here. Aaron, as we finish up, we always want to equip our listeners to pray. Um, so let's talk about India and how we can pray first for the church, for believers, but then also kind of overall for the nation as a whole. Yeah. I, as I talk to people in the local churches and in, in the, the large denominations in India, they are constantly asking for prayer. Uh, number one, that they would remain faithful. They don't want the the enemy to sow fear uh, among their their believers and among their uh, congregations. So they're they're really preaching and teaching. Hey, we've got to be prepared. We've we've got to be aware of what the enemy's doing. So please pray for us. When we ask people, how can we pray for you? Um, they're asking people to pray. Hey, pray that we'll stay strong. Very rarely do I hear them ask us. Pray that the persecution right. stops. And, it, it, and as a, again, from my perspective, how in the world that just doesn't make sense from our American church background. So they're praying that we stay strong in this and that we glorify God in this and, and not that we would uh, give in or, or not that we would stop going, you know, stop sharing the gospel. So that's a key prayer. Just pray that those, those brothers and sisters that we have around the world and in, in India that they would stay strong in the face of these persecutions. Um, they know very well, they know all too well, that's a great opportunity for them to share the light, for them to show how, how valuable Christ is, how worthy he is to them. Um, they, they get that. And, and it's so true, not just in India, but around the world. In that moment of persecution, the human response is, stop doing that or fight back or I'm going to call the police and get my rights. The supernatural Christ-like response is, I love you even though you're persecuting me. That doesn't make sense from a human perspective. So if you're the persecutor and you see that response, it can't help but plant a seed in your mind that, how how is this person able? I'm beating on this person. How is he able to smile and, and love me and express love for me? That doesn't make any sense to me. So pray for faithfulness, pray for boldness, uh, and then pray for those seeds as they're being planted in those moments of persecution. Because like you say, that that is a time to advance the gospel. Yeah, definitely. We've been talking this week with Aaron Miller. He oversees Voice of the Martyrs work in South Asia. And he's been telling us how we can be praying for the nation of India. Now, we often ask you to pray for the areas that we talk about here on VOM Radio. Are you ever tempted to think that those prayers really don't matter, that they really don't make a difference? Is a place like India so far gone that our prayers don't matter? To end our program, I want to give you a feel for what's really going on in India and what God is doing there. A few weeks ago, we heard from Liana Senquanta, another gospel worker in India, and I want to play you a portion of that interview that we didn't have time to air originally. I think it will give you a sense of how the gospel is spreading in India and how your prayers are making a difference. They are being answered in India. 
Leanna, you mentioned how the church is growing. Share some of the numbers because it is mm-hmm. mind-boggling. This is a place where when you got there, less than 1% of the people were believers. And you talked about 300 million people. Tell us, how fast is the church growing? What are the numbers of people who are coming to Christ? We've worked there now over 20 years. We train the Native people as leaders from very beginning, teaching them the Word of God, teaching them how to live as a Christian, the character of Christ, all the way into how to plant a church, how to go out and reach people for the gospel. And we have trained thousands and thousands of these young leaders, and we send them back to their home village. We don't try to send them to another place because they must be self-sufficient. We do not support them financially. They must continue working in their field or running their little business or whatever they're doing and plant the church. And that makes it fully sustainable. We've seen tens of thousands of people come to Christ over these years. And Voice of the Martyrs has played a big part of this is by providing not only is Voice of the Martyrs there for us when the pastors get persecuted, uh, but also providing resources, Bibles for new believers, cycles for pastors so they can go into those villages, motorbikes for some that are coordinating groups of leaders. And it is largely thanks to VOM, um, that we have seen over 800,000 people come to living, vibrant hope in Jesus Christ over these past approximately seven years. And along with that, planting of the village churches, bringing education to the children. There's been like about 40,000 children that were hopeless. They were without any education. They were growing up illiterate. They were going to repeat the misery of their parents in slavery and in poverty. And those children today have a bright future because of the education we've been able to give them. 800,000 believers. I hope the people who are listening get kind of excited about that. Uh, in the graveyard of missionaries, 800,000 mm-hmm, yes. believers now. We praise the Lord for that, and, I, and I'm thankful that Voice of the Martyrs gets to be a part of that. What is the role of the Indian government in in the persecution situation? Because we've talked about, you know, the village turns against you or your family kicks you out. That's not necessarily you get arrested and taken to court. What what is the government position towards Christians right mm-hmm. now? Right now, we have a very adversarial government. The government is actually wants to make India a Hindu nation. For many years under the uh, secular government that we had there, India was really progressing toward a first world nation, which is providing in the sense of providing religious freedom, providing security, providing uh, protection to their minorities and their religious uh, minorities. Now it's gone backwards. And for the last couple of years, it's really adversarial to the Christians. And so we have to really struggle to get any kind of justice. When a pastor is persecuted, uh, we have to really go in and have strong top leaders go in and fight for the justice to be done. It is legal to be a Christian, Mm -hmm. but the mobs and the Hindu mafia is always looking to try to cut off anyone who is sharing the gospel or making, leading people to Christ. That's Liana Sinquenta telling us about the ways the gospel is spreading in the Hindu nation of India. You can hear more from Liana if you look in our archives at vomradio.net. 
Leanna's interview with us is there at vomradio.net, as well as every other episode of VOM Radio. You can also subscribe to our podcast at vomradio.net and learn how to pray not only for India, but for other parts of the world as well. Next week, we're going to hear from a woman who is serving Christ in the former Soviet Republic of Belarus. This is a country that's gained freedom from the Soviet Union, but that doesn't always mean that Christians there don't face any problems or don't face persecution. We're going to hear more about that next week, so I hope you'll join us right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.